I'd like to start out by reading a quote from Bob Dylan about Barry Mazur's book, Ralph Peer and the Making of Popular Brutes Music. Dylan says, This is an overwhelming book about an overwhelming character in the music field, a true visionary who realized the potential power of common music long before anyone else and who transformed the lives of many of those artists whom he recorded. We owe Barry Mazur a debt of gratitude for telling Peer's incredible life story his monumental accomplishments, putting them all in one place and bringing them to light. Again, that's Bob Dylan talking about Barry Mazur's book, Ralph Peer and the Making of Popular Roots Music. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville with my cat Frankie on my left and my dog Russell on my right. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right off the bat that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Barry Mazur. Barry is the author of Ralph Peer and the Making of Popular Roots Music. And you can find out more about that book at ralphspeer.com. I guess I should say right up front that I'm a fan of Barry Mazur. He's a wonderful writer He knows exactly what he's talking about. He has a point of view, and I enjoy learning from him. There's so much to talk about with Ralph Peer that we could have just gone all over the map, but I decided it would be best if we just talked about his innovations. And we also mentioned the Bristol Sessions a couple times. I want everybody to know that we kind of glossed over that. I'm hoping to do a whole episode in the future on that, and maybe Barry will be nice enough to play along. Barry was nice enough to invite me over to his home here in East Nashville. He's one of my neighbors. But to give you an idea of what it was like to sit there in Barry's living room, I'm sitting there and Barry's staring me right in the eye. He's the kind of guy that looks you right in the eye, leans in, and his arms are kind of flying around every which way. He's very animated and very, very passionate. And we should all be as passionate as Barry Mazur about what we do. Here's Barry Mazur. Ralph Peer was an individual who did as much as any one man did to take American roots music and bring it into popular music on a, on a broad front. He was a kid from Independence, Missouri, who spent 50 years in the music business directly from age 10 to age 60. Half of it as kind of the prototype A&R man, a record man who finds recording acts, records them, matches them with music. The second half, fundamentally, as a music publisher, which kind of does that, but only on a, broad, on a broader basis because of all kinds of situations where the music can go. In the course of that, he changed American music and, and how we hear it, what we, what we take pop music to be, what we take roots music to be. That was Ralph Peer. 
I say it was as a businessman that he made these changes. He wasn't a musician. He wasn't a composer. Late in life, somebody asked him whether he had been. They assumed he must have been with everything that he'd accomplished. And he said, no, it's, 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 it's important not to know too much about music to do, to do these jobs. And he had a point, which is he had an instinct for observing what was going on. And that was kind of the core of his business. The things that these innovations that we're going to talk about here came about in each case because he was paying close attention to what was going on, which seemed to be the one thing nobody was doing over and over again. He might have been a scientist if he'd been a kid with money growing up, but he wasn't, although he found outlets for that later in life and like flowers and stuff. But in, in, in the record business, he picked up on things that other people weren't noticing, and they turned into new business. By the time he'd done it, that started when he was with RCA Victor Records in the 30s. And he had already been in the record business since he was 10 years old. A lot of it was sales, which meant he was out in the stores. That's where the kind of rubber meets the road. If you're going to be in the, in the business and find out what people want, that's the place to do it. I mean, everybody knows this. A record store dealer knows what, the, what their customers want that you deal with. And that's he was servicing those people. So he knew the difference between what somebody wanted in the city of Dallas from a rural store outside of Minneapolis. And that was a good place to begin. He had become, he had moved into A&R from being an executive in sales while at OK Records in the 20s. And, we can, and there were major innovations there. But along those years in the 20s, he picked up on some things that struck him as not fair, not profitable, and not smart. The biggest of these was the wholesale ignoring of what's called the mechanical rights on records, which is the publishing attached to records. This is not sheet music, which they'd all live by, but every record that's sold has a song copyright on it, and that's a part of publishing. Nobody had done anything with it, most of all because like record companies or movie companies who were starting to take it over didn't necessarily quickly see that it was a good idea that other people should record those songs too. They, they had their version. And now he was seeing beyond that. He wasn't their employee. He was a consultant to what they did. And he had this idea as a publisher, artist manager, and A&R man consultant on the side working for himself that these things could be exploited. There was money to be made. And if you were a roots music musician, it mattered more than anybody else. Because think about it. If you were writing blues, if you were, you know, name it, Tommy Johnson, <laughs> or you were Jimmy Rogers or the Carter family and country, all of whom he discovered, well, published and recorded, you weren't going to sell a lot of sheet music because the people cared about your music didn't read music. <laughs> so, so they didn't have that opportunity. And somebody like the Carter family, Jimmy Rogers performed all over everywhere all the time. The Carter family, not so much. They didn't want to. They kept it pretty local until they got to the radio. So there wasn't a whole lot of performance rights that they were getting, performing you know, fees. But what could they get? And in fact, he made them pretty wealthy when they had no money at all, which is the publishing on those songs. If you promote it, if you had strong characters like the Carters or Jimmy Rogers were on record, it would sell the song. And if the song was good, it would sell the performer. This was not the way people thought about acts like this. And so if you were Jimmy Rogers, he not only got the publishing on the songs he recorded, but 10, 12, 14 other people were what we would today say covering them, which they promoted. 
and the money's coming in from the Gene Autry version of the Jimmy Rogers song. And that's how he wound up with the Blue Yodeler's Paradise and Cadillacs and, and all of that. That's where the money was, and it still is, of course. The thing is, people weren't paying it. The first problem was is that the record companies didn't care to even make the most of it, which he saw you could do. And then you had to pay them. Because, you see, it's the publishing company had that mechanical right. The publisher had the right to share that with the songwriter. And they weren't doing it. Uh, he was the first to start to say that would be an incentive and this would be good for them. So the two cents by law, you had to, you had to pay for mechanical rights on records. Uh, half of that, a half cent of the, of, of, the, of the two cents would go to the songwriter. And they became very loyal about this because if you were somebody selling 100,000, 500,000 records like Jimmy Rogers, it is a lot of money. If you were selling 1,000 records you never heard of again, you wondered why you never got rich. And musicians still tend to wonder why they never got rich. It's because nobody bought anything. Yeah, But if they do, he made that available. That was an innovation, and it mattered. And is it fair to say this wasn't out of the goodness of his heart? He thought it no, was just good business. It was good business. He could have just kept it, but it made the people loyal. It made them happy. He was able to offer big talent better deals than other people. Listen, basically, if I didn't do it, somebody was going to. You know, the idea of doing this at all was new. When he, got, when he was employed at OK in the 20s, he said, where was Roots Music on records? Well, it wasn't. It simply wasn't. They, 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 some of the songs would show up and they would get pop singers to do them, or it wasn't much there at all. And this was an innovation at OK. He started, he started the entire so-called race music line, which was, which was blues, jazz, gospel, African-American music, which they did like, they'd already been doing Hungarian and Italian and, you know, Yiddish and Serbo-Croatian. So this was like the last ethnic groups they turned to was black and then down home white southern, white southerners, which was la the last, and and they started the hillbilly line. So he, so that was Fiddlin' John Carson and the first country records, which were not Bristol, which he was responsible for. But he'd been recording country music for four years before Bristol. Victor got him to come over and work for them exactly because he already knew how to do that. So and the Stoneman family, they were hit country records, the Titanic from the Stonemans. So it was a huge seller long before Bristol. And then Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues was the first hit, the first hit blues record by an African-American singing it. Because they'd had white people doing them for some years before that. And that set off that field. And, 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 and it wasn't obvious to anybody, which is why they weren't doing it. Now, the other thing is the timing. After World War I, there was, more, there was until the Depression came, more disposable cash in the hands of those sort of working class and underclass people than there'd ever there'd been. So first of all, it was true. There was more money around to spend. The second thing, but they didn't know that because they hadn't tried. It wasn't where their attention went. Um, in the case of, the, in the, case of the, the black audience, it is true that uh, Perry Bradford, a black publisher, and had suggested to them, if you did this, he was trying desperately to be a manager, a publisher, all those things. And they they had Sophie Tucker coming in the 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 white vaudevillian to do one more bluesy record, and it turned out she was under contract to Vocalion and couldn't couldn't do okay. And he said, you know, I got this girl who really can sing this. Her name's Mamie Smith, 
And she'd been singing his songs on a Broadway show already, which was already kind of integrated. And they said, what the heck, we'll give it a go. They gave it a try. And it kind of did all right. And they said, let's try closer. And by then, Pierre had put in charge of this new thing. He had gone down to Virginia. He followed Bradford's lead. He'd gone down. He went to the barber shops. And the, and the, there were no black record stores. You know, understand, in segregated America. It wasn't like Harlem where there could be. So he's like, is this audience you keep saying, they're really there? And all the indications were they were. One of the ways they knew is every time a record by a black artist was starting to be put out, the Pullman car porters were buying 25, 30, 50 copies up north, taking them with them and selling them down south. This was the indication that there's something going on here. And he talked to people and he talked to the chain and they say, yes, we think it's true. And they recorded Crazy Blues, which was like a gangster rap. I mean, that's gonna, I'm going to do like a Chinaman, buy myself some hop, get me a gun and shoot me a cop. This was a hit record in 1920, <laughs> the first hit blues record. And it was sold, it was by African-Americans, initially for African-Americans. That was the first idea. The hillbilly records were by hillbillies for hillbillies. They responded exactly like Greek records for Greeks. You <laughs> and it's like, it's like our stuff. And they reacted to it where attention was being paid. And um, there wasn't any great political agenda attached to it. It was simply that this was a market we hadn't touched. We think it's there. Dang, yes, it is. So they, they, they bought the records and, and, and they, they, they started to look for more along the same lines. Most important thing he ever said, I start my book with it. They said, you know, a folklorist asked him years later, what he had done for, you know, folkloric music. And he said, listen, what I learned very early on is that people don't want folkloric records. What they want is something new along the same lines. And this way of thinking about it is to create thousands of more records you could call folkloric if you want. <laughs> They're called Roots Rock. They're called Bluegrass. They're called Western Swing. They're called R&B. They're called, you know, that's where it would go. And none of that existed. And he wouldn't have called it field recording because the field is something anthropologists have. <laughs> it was just location recording in places where they could find people that, that, that were going to be able to make it, couldn't afford to New York or wouldn't have even heard about them. So the location recording started at OK in the 20s. It really started out as, a, as an, an, ad, an adjunct to radio happening. They reached a point where they were looking for new markets and ra local radio was happening, big radio stations in places like Atlanta or Nashville soon. So there were artists appearing on live radio who were locally promoted in advance and kind of pre-sold. It was like, couldn't we find those people and record them? And it's kind of pre they're kind of pre-sold in their own area. Eventually, that would lead to the independent record labels in the 40s that we all grew up with, but they didn't exist yet, regional record labels. So these were big record labels, and we'd go there. And they, at first, it was talent scouting. They'd bring them back to where they recorded. Then it was, can we get the right equipment, which was hard to do. This was not John and Alan Lomax sticking a recorder in the trunk. This was like because all they wanted to do was document songs. That was their job. And you, they were going to sell these to anybody, at least originally. Record companies needed to make professional records people wanted to hear. So they, they wound up with these like cuckoo clock kind of mechanisms that would get the turntables recording exactly right. This was pre-electrical. Then the improved electrical recordings like the mic we're talking into now, its predecessor arrived. That was even better. But they had to figure out how to take that out of the studio on the road. 
And essentially, by the way, that's what Bristol was about. It was the first big-time session with electrical recording dedicated to mostly country music meant that you could look for. This was his second big idea. The first big idea would have been selling ethnic records to the, to the people. The down-home records to down-home people was a market. The second thing was if we handled it right, this could be a big pop business. It, handling it right meant you needed strong personalities who you could sell and promote who had songs that matched them. And, you know, he proceeded to find the Carter family who were singing about the porch and the church and Jimmy Rogers who was singing about getting plowed on Saturday night. <laughs> and they seemed to be those people. You could promote him, you take him out there, everybody related, huge stars. Jimmy was the Elvis of his day. And this was his next thought, which is that it was also true that it meant vocalists were going to rule the day, not down-home square dance string bands, but star vocalists. And so in the other fields, the same thing happens. You know, he finds a flat swallower. Louis Armstrong is pulled out of other people's bands and put up front by peer first. It's the same principle at work. I found me a star, basically. And these stars created music, and the music related to themselves. Good idea. All of this was a package. That was the next big idea. <laughs> and that's who was getting paid all that money. Uh, now, the, the, the whole point of the location recordings was to uncover more talent. The people there might not have known, you know, and you had, you had local scouts who worked in clubs. Pierre didn't have to, Pierre knew that he didn't have to know everything about everything, and he never claimed to. But he could recognize people who could, and he trusted them. And these scouts would bring in people, and he would say, check this out in a club, and they would find the people. So that's what the location recording was about. At first, it was also cheaper than bringing them all back to New York all the time. <laughs> you, know? you know, and it might not work. Then as now, most records failed. I mean, the record business, like, you know, the movie business is that most of them are not going to sell that much. And the ones that do cover everything else. And it's like this crapshoot. And you, you try to get records that do. And that was the same arithmetic then. So you would cut costs if you could. This was before the Depression hit. Then the record business, while he was at RCA, nearly died. A great star, star like Jimmy Rogers, who was selling 500,000 units of his big records of T for Texas and things in the late 20s, which was huge. Um, uh, you got to remember how much smaller the population was. That was a big, big sale. In 1931, just three and a half years later, three years later, three and a half years later, he still, there's a letter I have from, from Pierre to Jimmy. It's like, you know, don't worry. You're still the top of the heap, but the heap's smaller. Well, the top of the heap three years later was 10,000 copies, maybe 5,000 copies. Most people were selling nothing. They were dropped. This was a combination of the depression, no disposable, disposable cash, and this horror that came along called radio. You bought a radio. This was like the horror of the Internet. You bought a radio and you never had to buy music again because then it streamed free over the air and it was clearly going to destroy the music business. <laughs> Everybody knew that. And it took a while to figure out, wait a minute, you could promote these personalities on broadcasting and it would be good for the record business. This is before DJs. Pre-word live radio was good for it. After the war, we get into DJs and Pierre was incrementally important in that because they wouldn't play the very kinds of music that he became involved in as a producer and then as a publisher, which he did because you just didn't want to compete with the Goliaths. 
I mean, it was it was hit them where they're not. That's what he learned at OK when they were doing Hungarian records. You really didn't want to do the same things that the big pop record companies were doing. And you kind of moved over here to the left, and there was all this other stuff that might make money that nobody was paying attention to. And that's why a businessman would pay attention to it, exactly because it was potentially hot and nobody was paying attention. Well, by, by the time you got to, towards World War II, his whole business was about three things. Two we've mentioned and one I haven't got to yet. A lot of it was black artists doing variations, including what was the beginnings of swing music he was involved with, which required that turned jazz into pop music. There was arrangements, there were bands, and for a while it was America's pop music. That was the same process as turning hillbilly tunes into country music when you come down to it. Um, regularize it, promote it, find stars for it, sounds in it, pop music. But the radio was not playing any any kind of black music except for a very tiny group of select stars. They weren't playing hillbilly music at all. And don't let, you know, the operating says, yes, they were very real, but very limited in terms compared to other music where you could get it on the air, the records. You know, people were just starting to play records at all. It was like, what live performers could you get on the air? Especially nationally, there were these networks now. And the other thing that they wouldn't play, and which Pierre had gotten very much involved in from the time of the Bristol Session, was Latin music. First south of the border, then bringing it into America. And remember, World War II, pop music in America practically is Latin music. That's the next craze, and that's, that's his doing, too, which is a whole other story. But none of those things would be, were being played much on the radio because ASCAP, the, now this gets to be a little technical, but let, I'll keep it as simple as I can. Musicians, you're a songwriter, and you know, musicians get, collect money off of the songs that they write through these licensing organizations. And ASCAP was pretty much it in those days, and they had no interest precisely in like hillbilly blues and Latin. <laughs> That's what they had no interest in. And Pierre stimulated people out of the broadcasters themselves who were fighting always with ASCAP of how much they had to pay ASCAP to take another look at all this other music out there. People didn't believe it could be as big or important or as, or as prestigious as, you know, opera and, and semi-operatic and, and Broadway show tunes, which was your standards for pop music. And I said, look, if you formed your own licensing organization, we could get these other people paid. There would be a way to handle all this. And basically, that's where BMI, which we know in Nashville, came from, basically following that route. And over the course of World War II, all that music took to the air. And without that happening, which he was central in making happening also, we wouldn't have the World War, the post-war world most of us listening grew up in, where there were country stations and R&B stations and eventually rock and roll stations, all of which tended to be playing BMI licensed records. And he was important in that. So each step of the way, because you can look at it as three acts, down-home music for down-home people, act two, which we talked about, down-home music for everybody nationally. And the next step was you could go anywhere in the world, and you could sell it anywhere in the world. He soon had publishing outfits in 28 countries doing the same thing. And at the end of World War II, you have to understand, they were dancing to Besame Mucho in Tokyo and in Stalingrad. And that was a song he had brought to the world. This was the same, you know, he, he, the, the, the woman who wrote that, he published, and, they t and his people took that song out, and people were dancing to it everywhere. 
So that was the concept. He sold Jimmy Rogers records in Australia and India, you know, because they got him out there. And pre eventually this was global music. And there's a logic to it. It was step by step. He said, well, why not there? And they try it. This is the experimenter. And a lot of times it works. The misconception would be he was kind of like John Lomax. He's the guy who discovered the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers at Bristol. That, if they know him, it's that sentence. Now, this guy's in the Country Music Hall of Fame. I mean, we could go on from all the places he was, but it's insider talk. He had no interest in promoting himself for most of his life. His third wife of three started to get him to do it a little. He didn't do interviews. He didn't promote him. He promoted them. You know, the idea, it's like the idea as, as an A&R man, as a record producer, did Ralph Peer have a sound? This was not a question anybody asked till at least the 1960s. That's not what producers did then. Produ you know, we've heard of producers the last 50 years since, you know, sort of Phil Spector days <laughs> because they promote themselves <laughs> and, and they have sounds and they attach themselves to things. They, they have been sold to us as very, very important. Um, he wasn't, and he didn't care if he was. But uh, so most of this was behind-the-scenes stuff. As I say, there was no single person who did more. He wasn't the only a early A&R man. He had competitors who he respected and, 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 and tried to one-up, as they would him once that happened, like Frank Walker at Columbia, who, you know, he had Mamie Smith, Jimmy Rogers, Frank found Bessie Smith, beat him there. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, you can find equivalents through country music, et cetera. But these all guys were friends. I mean, they felt they were, it was like a fraternity of people who got it, <laughs> you know, and there weren't that many people who got it. So they were friendly business competitors. And a lot of times musician, music makers, for very good reasons, neither trust nor particularly admire the non-musical parts of the music business. <laughs> and so many of them took advantage of so many people. I can tell you this, Pierre never stuck his name on a song as the fake co-author of a song in his entire career, publishing thousands of songs, never did that once. Tended to pay the people. Now, he got rich. I mean, the setup of all this meant that the publisher still got could make a whole lot of money. The other thing was, though, you know, Unlike most businesses like his, Pure Music to this day is a family-owned business. He never sold it out to some conglomerate when, the, when he got tired of it. His family still runs it in essentially similar fashion, and they're working essentially similar <laughs> genres. I mean, his son, Ralph Pierre II, has been CEO for, since his wife succeeded him when, when he died in 1960. His wife succeeded him for 20 years. His son, Ralph II, ever since... And I know for a fact very well, since I'm, I'm close to the family by this point, that Ralph's daughter is probably is, is clearly being uh, groomed to be next in line, <laughs> and the granddaughter. And and they still do that. And you know, publishing is a difficult business now. And all this, it's it's. Pierre was very good at rolling with the punches in terms of the changes in technology. Over and over, he became to be you know someday would talk to because exactly he was able to roll with those punches. And I'm sure he'd find a way today, but this is a very challenging time with digital music and streaming, and, and they don't want to pay the publishers either, you may have heard. So that's the fight that goes on now, but it's the same fight that's gone on over and over again since over 100 years when there's a change. Believe me, the, music pub the old line music publishing people who founded ASCAP, the Tim Pan Alley people, 
for you know masses of popular sheet music. Didn't trust the record company people. I mean, they, they, these records were going to ruin them, and there was a big fight over you know like that's not written down, so it's not you know it's not it's not copyrightable music. All these things had to be redefined, and then radio, television came along. Well, that was another fight. Should they figure out royalties for TV? Was it like radio or was it like the movies? Who had their ways? And you had to fight it all over again. So, you know, the digital era was just the same fight. It's always the same fights, which is what can be summarized as who gets what and I don't get paid enough for that. So part of the reason I wanted to do the book is to try to find out what was really going on in those rooms. What did he think he was doing? It was a little different than, you know, what did he tell people? What did he think he was doing? How, well, how was he operating? And what difference did it make? So I did this book. You know, it was like discographies and, and talks about him in jazz. And there was talks about him in country music. Well, how often do those people ever deal with each other? So you had to bring these threads together, let alone Latin music, to tell this story. And when you pieced it together and you discovered sometimes they were happening in the same room the same day, then you start to realize what this guy was and how he was operating and what he was doing. And that's what I hope I've, you know, helped clarify. I appreciate you taking the time to tell us some stories. My pleasure. Inviting me into My pleasure. Room. My pleasure. I'm glad you're asking the question. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Barry for inviting me into his home here in East Nashville. You can find out more about Ralph Peer and the making of popular roots music at ralphspeer.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.